0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Good Friday morning, everyone. We are glad you are with us. Again, a really busy news day. To end the week, always, always, always good on a
2: Friday too. A always developments happening. I love when the president's on a trip because then all the developments happening are happening during our show. Exactly.
1: There is a lot happening at the G7 in Japan. We're going to get to that and a lot more domestic news. Let's get started with five things to know for this Friday, May nineteenth. New overnight, CNN learning that Ukraine's President Zelensky will attend that G7 summit we just spoke about in Japan in person. Russia's war set to be a top agenda item as world leaders vow to step up
2: sanctions. And new reporting, the Biden administration signaling it won't stop allies from sending F-16 jets to Ukraine. That's according to sources familiar with the discussions. We'll see what they say today. Also happening today, the suspect charged with leaking military secrets will be back in court as a judge is expected to rule whether Jack Teixeira will remain behind bars well, he awaits trial.
1: Also another round of Disney versus DeSantis. This time it's Disney canceling plans to open a new billion dollar campus in Florida, costing the state an estimated 2,000 jobs. A spokesman for the governor called it unsurprising given the company's financial challenges. I think Disney would see it another way.
2: And a film festival celebrating Harrison Ford last night with a lifetime achievement honor, an emotional Ford thanks the crown as he premiered his latest and final Indiana Jones film. See it in this morning starts right now.
1: Did you see the Harrison Ford moment? I haven't seen it yet. It's really, it's really nice. We'll show it to you soon. It's really, it's a great moment. We'll see it, we'll show it to all of you. We begin though, of course, with a big development overnight. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is making a surprise trip to the G7 summit in Japan. He will meet there face-to-face with President Biden and those other world leaders you see right there in Hiroshima right now. Sources tell CNN he'll be arriving Saturday night, and he'll meet with those leaders on Sunday. Russia's brutal war in Ukraine is at the top of the G7 agenda. We're told some of the major topics will be, of course, whether to send those F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine's Air Force and also cracking down on Russia and Russia evading sanctions. A senior Ukrainian defense official says it's extremely important for Zelensky to be there because very important things will be decided, that official said at the summit.
2: Yeah, we know F-16s are on the agenda. Right now, it is a critical moment in the war, and that is why Zelensky has been on the world tour that he's gone on in recent days, meeting with allies from France to the UK. He's been pleading for more weapons, as his own forces are preparing for a major counteroffensive. One of Zelensky's biggest asks so far has been for those fighter jets. Sources do tell CNN now that the Biden administration is signaling it will allow European allies to send F-16 fighter jets, which are made by Lockheed Martin, to the Ukrainian military. CNN Chief White House Correspondent Phil Mattingly is live in Hiroshima. Phil, obviously this is a notable development as we are seeing all of these world leaders gathered. We've seen Zelensky address them in virtual forums before, but now he is going to be there in person.
3: Yeah, Caitlin, and over the course of the last several days, U.S. officials have been cagey about the format through which President Zelensky would appear at this G7 summit. Now we know why. He'll be here in person, and this will follow... Multiple trips. He's been a, kind of on a tour over the course of the last several weeks of European capitals. Expected at the Arab League summit in Saudi Arabia before he comes here uh, to Hiroshima, and it underscores the reality of this moment—an absolutely crucial moment in the ongoing war, Russia's invasion now more than a year, nearly a year and a half old at this point—and with Ukraine. Heading towards or moving towards their counteroffensive. This is the moment where Zelensky has made very clear they need more of just about everything. But as you noted, Caitlin, certainly on the defense capability side. And one thing you've seen in all of his stops, going back to when he visited Washington back in December and throughout the course of his travels through European capitals, he is securing commitments for more. That is critical here especially. These G7 countries have really been the fulcrum of the Western alliance that has been so durable, so steadfast in its support of Ukraine over the course of the last year. Plus, that is something that needs to be maintained. Zelensky and U.S. officials very cognizant of the fact that there are very much cross-cutting domestic pressures that each of these leaders face, particularly on the economy, and maintaining both support within the leaders group, but also back home is absolutely critical. Zelensky will try and hammer that point home. Now, one other thing, uh, G7 leaders agreeing to that sanctions package, both targeting, tightening the sanctions regime that's already in place, a so sweeping one at that in terms of evasion, but also targeting critical components that uh, the Russian government and Russian military can use for its defense industrial capacity. That is one element of this, but this will certainly be a, a theme from a very critical meeting with the leaders of the G7, which will include on Sunday, President Zelensky.
1: And while, Phil, uh, the leaders are meeting with Zelensky and focused on all of that, President Biden is also focused on what's happening at home with the days ticking by until we could possibly default. Your reporting, though, is that the White House officials in general are pretty happy with the progress made so far in these negotiations. Is that right?
3: They believe it's been productive. And I think this morning the president had a Zoom briefing with his lead negotiators, his White House chief of staff, one of his top communications advisors, uh, to get briefed on the latest talks his top team met with uh, Republican uh, negotiators for several hours yesterday. They feel like they are making progress. They are moving towards a direction. Make no mistake about it, there is a lot more work to do, and they haven't even started the process of trying to actually whip the votes to get something passed. They don't have a proposal to do so yet. But given where things were just a few days ago, White House officials feeling like they are on the path right now. It's not something that's coming up uh, in the meetings so far, but it's certainly something when you talk to European officials or other G7 uh, delegations, They're aware of, they're cognizant of, they would like this to be resolved sooner rather than later, guys. Okay.
1: let's hope. Phil Mattingly, thanks for the reporting from Hiroshima, Japan.
2: Also, we're tracking new developments overnight as Ukraine may be getting one step closer to receiving those U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets. Officials are now telling CNN that the Biden administration has signaled to European allies that the U.S. would approve the export of the jets to Ukraine if that's what they decide to do with their supply. The White House has been under increasing pressure from allies and members of Congress to help Ukraine secure the planes as Russia's aerial attacks have only continued to intensify, especially this month alone. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is live at the Pentagon. Natasha, obviously, we've seen the U.S. initially say, you know, we're not going to send tanks. We're not going to send rocket launchers. We're not going to send these air defense missiles only to later relent. And so the question is, is that what we think is going to happen here?
4: Yeah, there certainly have been many lines that the administration said it previously would not cross that it has now crossed with regard to many weapons it has sent to Ukraine. But right now, we're still seeing a lot of reluctance by the U.S. to signal that it would send its own F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. Of course, the U.S. has a large stockpile of those. Instead, they are telling us, officials are telling us, that they will not block uh, European allies who have the supply of F-16 fighter jets from exporting them to Ukraine themselves if that is what they want to do. And this is really significant because the U.S. has to approve any transfer of these F-16 jets to Ukraine or to any third country at all because of sensitive U.S. technology that is in those jets. So previously it was unclear whether the administration would approve uh, the export of these fighter jets. Uh, now we are hearing that they have signaled to the allies that if that is what they want to do with their jets, then the U.S. is not going to stand uh, in their way. And this is really significant also because the Ukrainians, without these fighter jets, they have had to We are told that the Ukrainians have uh, used a Patriot missile at least once to shoot down a Russian fighter jet, which is not necessarily uh, what they're designed to do. So with these jets, the administration and officials argue it will be a lot easier for them to counter the Russian jets, potentially gain uh, superiority in their skies. Now, all of this comes as the administration is telling us that there was actually an accounting error in the uh, military aid uh, funding uh, over the last couple months that they have just discovered that actually frees up an additional three billion in drawdown authority. So the Ukrainians really anticipating that a a boon to uh, U.S. aid to the Ukrainians could be coming quite soon, Caitlin.
2: Yeah. And I know lawmakers have a lot of questions about how that accounting error happened, but we'll get to that. But also this other story that's on the front page of The Washington Post today caught my eye. There was a a missile or a strike that happened in Syria earlier this month that the U.S. said took out an influential al-Qaeda leader. And now we're hearing from Central Command that they are investigating it, saying it may have resulted in a civilian that was killed in Syria. What do you know about this?
4: Yeah, Caitlin, so according to a statement overnight from Central Command, they are investigating whether an airstrike, a U.S. airstrike, on May 3rd in northwest Syria actually did not kill a senior al-Qaeda leader, as Central Command had previously stated in a tweet earlier this month, but that it actually resulted in the death of a civilian. Now, it had been very unclear earlier this month when Central Command announced that they had conducted this strike, who the target actually was, because they had never identified the supposed senior al-Qaeda leader that they had allegedly killed. Well, now we're learning uh, that it may not have been a senior al-Qaeda figure at all that they killed, but it was actually a civilian farmer. So they are investigating that now, Caitlin, and we'll wait for those results.
2: Yeah, and certainly why people ask for evidence when they boast about something like this. Natasha, keep us updated. Thank you. We
1: have new revelations this morning about the recent health struggles of 89-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein. The Senator's office confirmed that she suffered broader health complications from shingles than initially stated. After a denial, her office confirmed she had encephalitis, which is inflammation of the brain. They note that it resolved by itself after Feinstein left the hospital in March. Let's go to Melanie Zanona, live on the Hill. And Melanie, look, you gotta think about the context of this. This comes in the same week That her exchange, Senator Feinstein's exchange with reporters, raised a lot of alarm bells about whether she knew that she had been gone for two and a half months. And her office also confirmed that she continues to suffer from Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which can cause several issues. What can you tell us?
5: Yeah. Good morning to you, Poppy. In talking to both Senate Republicans and Democrats here on Capitol Hill, they are showing compassion and sympathy towards Senator Feinstein. And they have said that they think she can still continue to do her job. But you are absolutely right that this has raised broader questions about her mental capacity and her ability to serve in this very demanding job. After initially telling reporters that she just had a really bad flu and that nothing had really been diagnosed, her office did confirm and did reveal that she actually suffered several complications in relation to her shingles diagnosis. I wanna read you what her statement told us. They said, the senator previously disclosed that she had several complications related to her shingles diagnosis. Those complications included Ramsey-Hunt syndrome and encephalitis. While the encephalitis resolved itself shortly after she was released from the hospital in March, she continues to have complications from Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Now. Since returning to the Senate, we have seen her in a wheelchair. There's been a number of aides and other people helping her, including actually Nancy Pelosi's daughter. Uh, But, you know, she also has really taken on a lighter work schedule. So she hasn't been attending caucus meetings, really only attending votes where her vote is needed. So she has been able to help break that logjam of judicial nominations, which is one of the reasons why there was so much pressure on her to return, Poppy, Right. Uh, Melanie, thank you. Appreciate the reporting.
2: Also, this morning, authorities have released new body camera footage from Monday's mass shooting that happened in Farmington, New Mexico, when an 18 year old gunman shot nine people, ultimately killing three, before police shot and killed him. You're about to see the moment when a police sergeant was hit as he was responding to the scene. But first, I do want to warn you you might find this video disturbing.
6: I'm shot. Oh, Lord, that was-
2: That officer, now recovering at home, as the suspect continued walking throughout the neighborhood, opening fire during this. Here's the moment the police ultimately took the shooter down, and a warning it is a volley of gunshots that will be heard in this audio.
7: Get back inside, people!
8: Five, two, one! I'm good!
9: <laughs> Subjects is down! Subjects is down!
2: Just an absolutely chaotic scene. Ultimately, 79-year-old Shirley Voita Shirley was driving in the area when she was shot and fell out of her vehicle. Gwendolyn Schofield and Melalee Ivy, a mother and a daughter, drove up and were attempting to render aid when they were also shot and killed. You can see their photos here. Police say that the shooter purchased the rifle legally just one month after his 18th birthday. The motive, though, remains under investigation.
1: We'll keep following that, of course. Meantime, Disney escalating its battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis scrapping plans to build a billion-dollar office complex in the state. Could this impact DeSantis's much-anticipated presidential run?
2: Plus, another Republican governor, this Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, has just released a campaign style video raising questions of whether or not he's going to join the race. We'll talk about that next. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
1: The bitter feud between Disney and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is escalating again. Just as DeSantis is expected to launch his bid for the White House, Disney is scrapping plans to build a billion dollar office complex in central Florida. It would have brought 2000 jobs to the state. Now, Disney did not exactly call out DeSantis by name with this decision citing instead challenging business conditions for canceling those plans for that campus near Lake Nona, which is near Orlando. Now, a spokesperson for DeSantis called the move unsurprising and said that Disney would cancel the project, quote, given the company's financial straits, falling market cap and declining stock price.
2: Disney's decision comes as, of course, Governor DeSantis is expected to officially enter the race next week. He has been long speculated to be running for the GOP nomination. We are now told it will be official next week. According to The New York Times, the Florida governor told donors on a call yesterday he sees that there are only three credible candidates in this 2024 race. I'm quoting Governor DeSantis now, Biden, Trump and me. He added, quote, I think of those three, two have a chance to get elected president, Biden and me, based on all the data in the swing states, which is not great for the former president and probably insurmountable because people aren't going to change their view of him. Sources tell CNN that Governor DeSantis will file the presidential campaign paperwork next week. That is something he must do in order to solicit those campaign donations. His plan to defeat former President Trump, running to the right of the former president when it comes to abortion, guns and transgender rights. Joining us now with his reporting on all of this is CNN's chief national affairs correspondent, Jeff Zelani. Jeff, I noticed that in the reporting from this call when DeSantis was speaking with donors, he didn't really talk about these Uh, Disney, these culture wars, of course, that he's been talking about when he's on the trail otherwise.
10: He didn't. And that, of course, complicates his entire argument. So the reality is uh, the message that he was making yesterday to donors privately, that he is the only one who can win on the Republican side, in fact, is a message that uh, his advisors and his team has been making really for several months. They believe that uh, his strength in some of these uh, states where voters have already sort of given their opinion on the former president, uh, that that's a place he can win. But the reality is everything that he has done that has strengthened him in the Republican primary presents a complication for him in a general election if he ever gets there. So, no, he did not mention Disney. But, Caitlin, of course, one person who did mention Disney was Donald Trump. He was out yesterday with a series of messages on social media and looked for... potential uh, television ads and other things on this as well, really going after the Florida governor for uh, potentially losing all these jobs in the state. So we should point out this is the very beginning of the process with with uh, Ron DeSantis versus Donald uh, uh, Trump. So he can say that he wins, but the Republican voters will have the final say on that. And everything that has strengthened him with this Florida a blueprint, as he calls it. All these laws that he has signed in Florida certainly uh, makes a challenge for him if he ever makes it to a general election. Yeah.
1: And that is, I think, where this can get pretty complicated for DeSantis, just right. because he's untested in front, really untested in front of unfriendly audiences. He really only does interviews with friendly media, you know, not really objective uh, reporters often. And so one of the real questions is how would he do in front of different audiences, whether it's in a town hall, whether it's in a debate, whether it's in a difficult interview.
10: There's no doubt about it. And also independent voters. I mean, to win the White House, to win the presidency, you must get those independent voters. And that is something that uh, really uh, he has not uh, shown an interest in doing. We should point out some six months or so ago last fall, he won Florida. He won re-election by some 19 points. Right. But things have changed dramatically since then uh, for him. So he um, is starting this. Uh, from the very beginning, from scratch. We will see how he does with tougher audiences. And sometimes those tougher audiences can come from questions from voters. He's going to be in New Hampshire later this morning, meeting with legislatures and others. I was in New Hampshire this week, and a lot of Republicans there want to know specifically if he will confront uh, questions about the Trump electability face-to-face. Is he going to be uh, sort of making these arguments to Republican voters or simply on a phone call with donors. So uh, it is far, far, far too early to say that this is a two man race on the Republican side. Absolutely. uh, There are several candidates uh, who are jumping in. Tim Scott on Monday, he has more money than anyone else in the Republican side in terms of hard dollars to spend. So, again, we should all exhale, take a deep breath, enjoy the uncertainty of this or at the beginning of this primary road, not the end.
2: And, Jeff, also, you know, speaking of governors who may get in, Governor Yunkin of Virginia has right. just tweeted this video that is also fueling some questions on whether or not he's going to get in this race.
0: President Ronald Reagan changed lives. And now it's our turn. A time to choose life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness over oppression and dictatorial rule. The stakes are
7: high.
1: It's also, by the way, big piece in the Washington Post this morning. What does it tell you? Because I thought our reporting a few weeks ago was not this time. He's probably not going to run.
10: And that's still what they say. They still say, look, he has no plans of jumping into this race. But what I... Uh, see when I see that ad, it's an insurance policy. Everyone uh, or a lot of governors, and he probably leads the list. Uh, Look, if things don't go so well in this Republican primary for a Governor DeSantis and others, uh, would they be there to sort of jump in at the end? So he's been talking about wanting to focus on Virginia. Uh, That video does not look very focused on Virginia. In fact, it was filmed at the Reagan Library where he gave a speech earlier this year. So uh, look, um, it's one more sign that uh, a lot of uncertainty in this race, and he is certainly watching from the sidelines. We
1: should all heed your advice. Welcome the uncertainty.
2: <laughs> well, and my <laughs> earpiece said, did we mention the fact that one thing, you know, of course, Virginia is home to a lot of military bases. That's a great point. Right. No, but in this video, one of the mistakes that they made, they yeah. showed a European, a foreign fighter jet, and seemed to imply that it was an American, American one, one, something that they said uh, they would have mm. to fix. Jeff Zelani. Always thank- a
10: good eye, Caitlin. Great
2: <laughs> eye. <laughs> thank you, Jeff. All right, coming up, we have a CNN exclusive interview with Turkey's longtime President Erdogan, who is now fighting for his political life as he is heading into his nation's first ever runoff election in nine days. What he says about President Biden.
1: All right, welcome back to CNN this morning. Happening overnight, a man has been arrested after driving through a security gate at the Vatican. This is according to the Vatican press room. Let me show you. You can see here the car driving around the square. Security guards reportedly stopped him from entering, but moments later he returned and just rammed through the gates. That's what you're seeing right now. Security shot at the tires, but the car managed to continue on. He made it to a courtyard where he was eventually arrested. The Vatican News reported that the 40 year old man was experiencing a serious state of psychophysical alteration. That's what they called it, according to a doctor's assessment.
2: Also this morning, Turkey's longtime president, President Erdogan, says he is feeling confident as he is headed into the nation's first ever runoff election just nine days from now. That is what he told CNN's Becky Anderson in an exclusive interview. Of course, Turkey is a key NATO ally that has rankled other NATO allies. The outcome of this race could have major implications beyond Turkey for the entire NATO alliance and for the war in Ukraine, but even Turkey's democracy. Erdogan has been in power for 20 years now. If he won re-election, that would only go even further. But on Sunday, he failed to secure 50% of the vote in the general election against the opposition opposition leader Kemal Darulu. Throughout Erdogan's presidency, he's faced criticism for consolidating power and silencing his political rivals, often putting them behind bars. He's also fostered close ties with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, and Iran. CNN's international, Becky Anderson, is here with us live with her exclusive interview with President Erdogan. I mean, this is so fascinating to hear him talk, especially as he is now fighting for his political survival. What did he tell you?
11: Well, there has been no love lost between successive US administrations and President Erdogan over his more than 20-year rule as the Turkish leader. And his relationship with Joe Biden is no exception. Back in 2020, then-presidential candidate Joe Biden called the Turkish leader an autocrat, He criticised his policy towards the Kurds, and he said at the time he would support the Turkish opposition in trying to unseat him. Now, to an increasingly nationalistic Turkish population, anti-Americanism plays well with a crowd here, and the Turkish president knows that at a rally on Saturday, calling out Joe Biden accusing him of trying to topple him in a wide-ranging interview that I had with the Turkish president, we discussed that and asked him to explain. Do you genuinely believe, as you suggested last Saturday, that Joe Biden wants to topple you?) <laughs>
12: How could someone who is going into a runoff election, instead of completing the election in the first round, be a dictator? That is the reality. We have an alliance with 322 MPs in parliament, and the leader of this alliance is going to go for the runoffs in the first position. What kind of a dictator is that?
11: So if re-elected, are you saying that you will work with the Biden administration, you can work with the Biden administration?
12: Without a doubt, I will work with Mr. Biden. And if Biden goes, then I will work with whoever replaces him as well.
11: You've said that you don't agree with the attitude of the West towards Russia with regard the Ukraine conflict, that the West follows a policy based on provocation. I just want to get your sense of where you believe the West perhaps is going wrong here. Is this military and financial aid that we see at present a provocation to your mind?
12: The West is not leading a very balanced approach. You need a balanced approach towards a country such as Russia, which would have been a much more fortunate approach.
13: For example, the Black
12: Sea Grain Corridor Initiative. We are not only considering the interests and the needs of the Western countries, but also that of the African nations. This Green Corridor Initiative has been extended for another two months beginning on the 18th of May. How do you think it was possible? It was possible because of our special relationship with President Putin.
11: This relationship really vexes Washington, and if uh, President Erdogan is re-elected, uh, Washington is going to really have to work out how it deals with him. Let's remember, he's a long-time NATO ally, NATO member, of course. Uh, they've condemned uh, the Russian invasion. Of Ukraine, and they have said that they support uh, the return of all Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. But Russia is an incredibly important economic partner for Turkey at this point, while Turkey's economy is in such dire straits—62 billion dollars annually of trade in tourism and energy. So it's this is a really. Difficult balancing act to a certain extent for Turkey uh, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, but also for Washington. And just to be quite clear, um, Turkey um, holds the sort of keys, as it were, to Sweden's accession to NATO at present. And in that interview, the president says uh, that he isn't ready for Sweden to join NATO. And I quote him here. He says, while offshoots of Turkish terror groups roam freely on the streets of Stockholm. That is an allegation that Sweden refutes. But Washington and the rest of the Western allies really want that Swedish accession. President Erdogan sits on it at present, and he told me he's not ready to vote them in. Caitlin?
2: Yeah, and the White House, you know, has said publicly on the record that they want whoever wins to win. They want it to be a fair election. But obviously, if you talk to them privately, Mm. they wouldn't be too sad if there was an Erdogan loss here. Fascinating interview. Becky Anderson, thank you.
1: Mm. Fascinating interview indeed. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen with a warning to bank CEOs of severe economic consequences if the debt ceiling is not addressed. I'll tell you what else she told
2: them. The Supreme Court also just handed a major win to social media companies. We have the details on the latest ruling ahead. just in, we're hearing from the
1: White House that President Biden will leave a dinner with his fellow G7 leaders early to go to his hotel for a briefing on the latest on the debt ceiling talks. This comes after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen held critical talks with more than two dozen bank CEOs in Washington yesterday. Yellen stressed the need for Congress to agree to raise the debt limit before the U.S. runs out of money to pay its bills and therefore default. And by the way, that could be as soon as June 1st. Joining us, Chief Business Correspondent Christine Romans. This meeting comes as news uh, is coming out of yeah. some cautious progress in yeah. these
14: negotiations. And you know, yesterday, Janet Yellen with all those bank CEOs, she's been working the phones, right? They all are, she's sort of preaching to the choir there that this could be very dangerous. She said a failure to raise or suspend that debt limit would be catastrophic for the financial system as well as American families and businesses. It's what she has been saying for so long, and all those people in the room do it. Two dozen bank executives uh, there in that room, and they also talked about banking stability, which I think is a really other important part of this uh, story. Because look, if we were to default even quickly on our debt, and you had a couple of ratings agencies downgrade um, downgrade U.S. debt, the, these banks that are holding U.S. debt wouldn't be able to hold it anymore. Right. It would have to. It would be just. I mean, the second tier. Knockdown would be just awful. So they've got to get this figured out. They really do.
2: And it's just remarkable. I mean, Biden is leaving a dinner with G7 yeah. leaders early. The yeah. White House just confirming that from Corrine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, because yeah. he has to go to his hotel early to get a briefing on from his team on what's going on with these talks and how they're progressing. I think we probably heard the most optimistic view so far from Kevin McCarthy yesterday. But, But as you were saying on your show this morning, they're still very far apart when it comes to the actual substance and where they're going to agree on something. Yeah. Okay. so they're probably – I'm sure they're in Japan looking at the daily
14: Treasury cash balance, which has now fallen to $68 billion from $90 billion – do you ever look at your bank $90 account? $90 billion dollars yesterday. Yeah. Do you ever look at your bank account to see how much is there? Yeah. Well, there's it only. It m- says $90 billion. Right, right. So well, okay. That. So, say $90, <laughs> but only the money is coming out. The money is only coming out. Jeez. And so, they've got a lot of work to do. So, how do they get to yes, I guess, is the question. Work requirements for some of these safety net programs? Senator Biden has voted for that before. Yeah. So, maybe there's some uh, common ground there. Unspent COVID 19 aid for some mm-hmm. states. Maybe that could be pulled back in energy permitting reform. Mm-hmm. That's where there could be some compromise. Mm-hmm. Everything else, though, they're still far apart.
2: Yeah. And as progressives have said, you know, we didn't vote for President Biden, we or Senator Biden. We exactly. voted for President Biden when it comes to those votes he took
1: uh, on the work requirements. And they've sort of undone a lot of those 1996 work requirements for a while now. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Christine, okay, thank nice you. you Keep checking the bank account, the coffers <laughs> of the country. We yeah, let me
2: know it. when mine says $90 million. <laughs> Right, the Supreme Court has just handed a major victory to two social media companies and two lawsuits that legal experts have warned could upend, could have upended the Internet. The families of people who were killed in terrorist attacks in Istanbul and Paris had sued Twitter and Google, claiming that the companies aided and abetted ISIS by failing to prevent violent groups from using their platforms. Earlier this year, CNN's Jessica Schneider spoke to the parents of the only American who was killed in Paris. They told her why they took on this legal fight.
15: We continue in this fight because we're seeking justice. Nothing is uh, going to give me back my daughter, but at least that is something good is going to be accomplished.
2: The Supreme Court did not agree with that. They actually unanimously rejected those claims. CNN's De DeVogue joins us now. Ariane, obviously you know the Supreme Court better than anyone. And essentially what they're saying is that these companies are not liable, they believe, for the content that is on their platforms.
6: Right. This morning, these online media companies, they're really relieved because these companies sought to hold them accountable for some of that third-party content that appeared on their platforms that critics said, look, might have helped terrorism here. And this is all a part of this bigger push we've seen going on, saying that these social media companies, they need to be more regulated. Uh, And here, uh, you saw like a flood of -of so-called friend-of-the-court briefs flooding the Supreme Court on this issue. But a unanimous court in this Twitter case, they came back and they said, look, you cannot use these anti-terrorism laws. And basically that's because there wasn't a close enough nexus between the actual terrorist act and Twitter. Twitter was serving here more as a bystander, the court said. Here's what Justice Clarence Thomas said for a unanimous court. He said it might be that bad actors like ISIS are able to use platforms like defendants for illegal and sometimes terrible ends. But the same could be said of cell phones, emails or the Internet generally. Right there, what the court is saying is it is not willing to go there uh, and to hold up with these families were uh, challenging.
2: Yeah, not willing to go there yet. But of course, we've just seen how ever present this issue is with the the presence of social media. Ariane DeVogue, thank you for that. Thanks. Okay, it is the fastest-growing sport in America, pickleball. We are going to be joined by the number one female player in the country, and guess what? She's just 16 years old. A 16-year-old American phenom is the top-ranked women's pickleball player in the world, and she has been described as the face of America's fastest-growing sport, Anna Lee Waters is coming off a Triple Crown effort in North Carolina, where she scored wins in the women's singles, women's doubles, and mixed doubles events. She is now set to compete in another tournament in Atlanta this weekend, and she joins us now. Anna Lee, we're so happy to have you here. Um, how are you feeling about this weekend?
16: I'm super excited for this weekend, especially after uh, two weeks ago in North Carolina coming home with the Triple Crown, so I'm hoping to repeat that this
1: weekend. We have a good feeling that you will be able to do that this weekend. Can you talk to us about why on earth everyone is talking about pickleball? What is so special about it?
16: There's a lot of special things about pickleball. I feel like the main reasons that it's just kind of taken off um, is because it's it's like a family sport. You can go out there with your whole family and your five-year-old can play pickleball. And your 80-year-old grandfather can also play pickleball. So it's just a really fun thing that. Uh, that all ages can really do together. It's also a really social sport. So I feel like anybody who just wants to start playing pickleball, go out to your local park. I don't even think you need a paddle or you need to know the rules. You really don't. Just because when you go to those parks, uh, pickleball players are so inviting. Um, and they really just teach you everything about the game. And you become close friends with your your pickleballers.
2: And it really has grown so much in popularity. I feel like everyone's talking about it now. COVID, of course, helps, I think, because it was a way people could yeah. be outdoors, exercise, but still be distanced um, from one another. It was popular in retirement communities before that, but now we've seen how popular it is. And one of the best parts is, you're one of the youngest, or you're the youngest professional pickleball champion in history. So what you know, how did you get started? When did you get started?
16: So I got started playing pickleball in late 2017. My grandfather actually taught me how to play pickleball. Um, and from there, I just kind of did it as a fun thing. Uh, my mom started at the same time turned pro immediately. And about a year later, um, a year and a half later, I started playing pro with my mom. Uh, as well. So I started playing pro around 12, so about four years now. Um, but it's just been amazing. Um, I say that like the only good thing that came out of COVID was that pickleball kind of blew up, um, because I did see that huge jump, uh, in pickleball. And it's kind of cool because I kind of grew up as the sport grew up. So we're kind of doing it together. That.
1: So what's the goal? What's the ultimate goal beyond another triple crown this weekend?
16: <laughs> i would say so my first goal was the triple crown now i'm gonna say my goal is to get gold medal in the olympics Ooh, love that. Love that.
1: so it's an olympic sport
2: it, not yet not okay. yet but uh we're getting Coming. there. you're getting, getting there. there all right congratulations <laughs> only a matter of time Annalie, thank you so much for joining us and good luck this weekend thank you so much I'm going to remember that moment when it does become an Olympic sport.
1: I know. What did you do at age 16? I certainly wasn't the best in anything. Triple crown, like, (laughs) winning, pickleball player. Congrats, Annalie. Okay, cruises are making a big post-COVID comeback. We'll show you the new data ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
16: Let it flow.
2: Back to you. the love boat love for cruises
1: is back after covid nearly destroyed the industry cruise travel is now full steam ahead new data from bank of america suggests cruise ships are now even outpacing some other forms of vacation travel why our business reporter nathaniel myerson is here with us what's up
9: so let's look at the cruise passenger numbers the last few years. 2019, about 30 million people went on cruises. That number plunged to wow. 6 million during the pandemic in 2020. 5 million passengers in 2021. Then we saw a rebound in 2022, 20 million passengers. 2023, an estimated 32 million people are expected to go on cruises. That's higher than the 2019 pre-pandemic number. We also see cruises spending on cruises start to outpace airlines, this red number. Um, And then Port Miami, which is the largest, it's the cruise capital of the world. Uh, About 68,000 people uh, went on cruises in April. It was a record day. So cruises are back.
2: So it's kind of surprising because I feel like when this was, they were at those lows, obviously it was because of COVID, people weren't traveling as much. But the fact that they have made this resurgence what, resurgence, what is that attributed to? Is it amazing ads? What are, how are they getting people to come back?
9: The boomers are back. The boomers are cruising. So <laughs> the the average age of a, of a cruise passenger is 47. People over 60 make up 33% of all cruise passengers, 32% ages uh, 40 to 59. And here we have millennials and Gen Z. They make up about 35% of cruise passengers. The cruises are trying to win millennials and Gen Z, but it's really the boomers that are back. And it's not just cruises that are back. Right. People are traveling. They're going to restaurants. Airbnb saw record bookings. Delta is expecting a record summer. Uh, you know, folks are back. They're, they're We're not buying furniture and electronics, the stuff we got early in the pandemic, but we're going to Taylor Swift concerts. And we're going on cruises.
1: Some of us get to <laughs> go to Taylor's. I can
2: attest it is worth all of the money. <laughs> it's like the price of a cruise ship to go to a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> Dana Myerson, yeah. thank you for that. And CNN This Morning continues right now. G7 summit will soon be welcoming a special surprise guest,
4: Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky.
12: It's a very dramatic in-person appeal,
17: almost certainly for more powerful weapons as Ukraine works to regain territory.
13: our countries stand together, we stand stronger.
18: Disney is scrapping a $1 billion plan to build an office complex in Florida. This is the latest battle in its war with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. He
19: is leaning in, not
20: shying away from this fight with Disney, planning to continue to rail against on the campaign trail. This party is no longer the pro-corporate party, and that is a huge shift in America.
11: Senator Feinstein, do you still feel like you're fit to
20: serve? New health revelations coming
8: to light. Complications including encephalitis. You couldn't be left with difficulties with memory.
10: We all have health issues. She is performing, doing her job.
11: Did four children survive a deadly plane crash in the Amazon jungle? The mystery
21: and search is intensifying. The president's tweet was deleted. The information, quote, could not
7: be confirmed. Once the rivers start to swell, it makes it more difficult to navigate. The rivers are kind of the highway.
14: Harrison Ford fought back tears as he was presented with an honorary Palme d'Or, a lifetime achievement honor at the Cannes Film Festival, premiering the fifth chapter of Indiana Jones.
13: You've given my life purpose and meaning and i'm grateful for that
2: good morning everyone good to have you with the with us on this busy busy friday busy friday especially busy overseas this just in moments ago as the white house now says the president biden is going to leave a dinner with fellow g7 leaders early because he's going back to his hotel to get an update from his team on the debt limit negotiations The crisis back in Washington has been overshadowing Biden's crucial foreign trip during a critical moment in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're now learning also this morning that Ukrainian President Zelensky is also going to Japan to meet face to face with President Biden and the other G7 leaders. Sources tell CNN he's going to arrive Saturday evening and meet with them on Sunday. Just this morning, the G7 leaders put out a statement vowing to support Russia, vowing to support Ukraine against Russia's brutal invasion for, quote, as long as it takes. And we're told a big topic of discussion will be whether or not to send those F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine's air force to potentially help them turn the tide in this war. Sources say the U.S. is now signaling it will not block U.S. allies from exporting them.
1: Zelensky has been on a whirlwind of diplomatic missions across Europe. He just arrived in Saudi Arabia to meet with the Arab League. He has been pushing allies to send more weapons as his troops prepare for a crucial counteroffensive. One of Zelensky's biggest demands has been those F-16 fighter jets. Nick Robertson is live on the ground in eastern Ukraine, not far from the front lines. Nick, glad to have you with us. His trip, the fact that he's going in person, he's not joining them, you know, remotely. He's going because he thinks it's crucial to be face-to-face with President Biden, for F-16s, I'm sure, but also with these other European leaders.
22: Yeah, we know the F-16s are going to be, you know, top of the agenda for Zelensky because it has been for some time. He knows he's beginning to win the argument that is won over some of those European leaders. He was meeting with them in their capitals earlier in the week. Those leaders met in Iceland a couple of days ago, and there they came up with a plan to help get Ukrainian fighter pilots trained for the F-16, to help the Ukrainians figure out how to purchase F-16s. Zelensky's uh, advisors are saying it's extremely important for him to be there in person to explain uh, their thinking, to put forward their proposals, to put forward their arguments, and and really give the leaders the best and most accurate, up-to-date sense of what's happening in the war here in Ukraine. And for Zelensky, that is quite simply going to come out with the need to push for more ammunition and the need to get those fighter jets. And he thinks best way to get this done for him, be there in person, make the case face to face.
2: Yeah, it's a powerful argument to make. But before he gets to Japan, he's just landed in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, Nick. And obviously, there are some very wealthy Gulf state leaders there that have provided a substantial amount um, of assistance to Ukraine. What's the expectation for this stop before he gets to that G7 meeting?
22: He's yeah, expected to have a bilateral with uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Look, uh, the Crown Prince of, of Saudi, uh, perhaps not well liked on the some aspects on the world stage, but he has been hugely busy behind the scenes trying to help with things like prisoner releases, prisoner exchanges. And this will be a topic of conversation for Zelensky, but it'll also talk about the Muslims uh, in Ukraine, the Crimean Tatars who are facing political oppression in Crimea under the Russians. That will be a topic of discussion. But uh, what Zelensky recognizes is and his, fo- and, um, the air alert is oh, sorry, here. that's a. May the force be with you. Warning just being cleared here. They come in quite often. Um, what Zelensky will be talking about will be the plight of the Tatars in Crimea under Russian rule. But also he recognizes that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman wants to play a role in stabilizing and a potential peace deal down the road. So that will be part of the conversation there as well. The foreign minister of Saudi was in uh, Kiev a couple of months ago uh, talking about support that the country can give. Zelensky understands as well that MBS has a relationship with Putin can get in Putin's mindset. Um, there's, a lot on, there's a lot that Zelensky can get out of this meeting.
1: Nick, thank you for being there for us on both those fronts.
2: Yeah, remarkable to see that with Saudi Arabia as they've obviously tried to walk a very fine line. Fine line. line. With all of us joining us now for the military perspective on this is retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton, a CNN military analyst and former member, I should note, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon. Thank you so much for being here. Obviously, the F 16s is something we've been talking about for so long about whether or not they are going to be able to get them, develop this air superiority that they've not been able, Ukraine has not been able to do so far. But the pushback we've heard from the U.S. has been it takes so long to train the Ukrainian forces on these F-16s. What's the sense of how it could help though?
23: Yeah, that's a great question, Caitlin. So let's take a look at the F-16 because what you're looking at here is a very versatile aircraft. And, uh, you know, when you see what it can do, I mean, it can fly at 1,500 miles per hour. It uses what are known as radiation detection and target air uh, to target air defense systems. So this is very important because what it's going to be able to do is it's going to be able to go after uh, Russian air defense uh areas, such as the S-300, the missile system that's there, the S-400 potentially. But those are also very dangerous weapons for this kind of an aircraft. It is not a stealth fighter. Uh, It has a 20-millimeter gun. It's basically an air-to-air and an air-to-ground combat platform. And that's one of the main reasons, because of its versatility, that the Ukrainians want this aircraft.
2: Yeah, very versatile. Obviously, something they could use. We've seen how they've tried to make up for not having them The new reporting from CNN is that the U.S. is signaling to allies that it may allow the export of F-16s, which would allow other countries that have these obviously made in the U.S. to be able to send them to Ukraine. Which countries is it exactly that that have the F-16s that could have the capability of potentially sending them?
23: So these are the countries in NATO, besides the United States, that actually fly the F-16. Everyone from Turkey and Greece all the way up through Romania, Poland, and then, of course, the Scandinavian countries of Norway, Denmark, and then the Benelux uh, Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, So these countries are critical for this. One country that has made that transition very effectively uh, from Soviet-era fighters to the F-16 is Poland. Another one is Romania. So these two countries would be the most likely ones to help with that transition, because they're also interested in getting newer generation fighters that are even newer than the F-16. And this would be one way to do that, provide their F-16s to Ukraine and then be able to, for the Ukrainians, be able to use them against Russian targets. Yeah.
2: And with these F-16s, I've talked to people at the Pentagon about the reluctance to say whether, yes, we'll allow U.S. allies to to export theirs, or we ourselves will send them But it's also an argument we heard about the tanks, about other pieces of equipment that they did eventually send to Ukraine. What's your sense of of what they'll what they'll do here?
23: So what I think they're going to do, Caitlin, is, you know, let's, uh, looking at all the different platforms and weapon systems that we have provided to the Ukrainians, uh, you know, everything from anti-aircraft missiles, the Stinger of, a variety, the 155 millimeter howitzers, the drones, the switchblade drones, and of course, as you mentioned, the tanks, the Patriot missiles, all of those become important packages. So my sense is that what they're going to do is they are going to let the Ukrainians have the F-16. You had mentioned earlier that one of the key things is training pilots. Two countries have indicated that they would like to train the Ukrainians on Western platforms. Those would be the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. And that could very well make the difference. The training system that we currently have in place takes about nine months for most people to train into the F-16 and then be proficient in that aircraft. Uh, The Ukrainians might be able to do it within 69 days if they just move from their platforms, the Soviet-era MiG-29s and Su-27s into the F-16. They won't be completely proficient after that time frame, but it is something that they could potentially do, given the fact that they have a lot of combat experience already.
2: Yep. And all of this is being discussed in Japan right now, so we'll see what they decide. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, though, about this development that happened overnight where Central Command is now saying that they're investigating a strike that happened just a few weeks ago in Syria that initially they boasted about, saying that it killed a senior leader of al-Qaeda. But now they're investigating whether or not it was a civilian who was killed. <laughs>
23: Yeah, so this is one of those uh, situations where the battle damage assessment of a raid has all, has come back. And uh, what the Pentagon believes right now, Caitlin, is that they may not have hit the right target, the intended target. So instead of hitting an al-Qaeda leader, like you mentioned, they hit a civilian. Uh, this is something that, uh, if it is true, is going to be very unfortunate because you do not want to antagonize the local population. And this also points to a weakness in this over-the-horizon idea that the Biden administration has had that you can prosecute a war against terror without actually having many boots on the ground in the region. Uh, That's something that is very dangerous if you don't have the right intelligence sources to help with that.
2: Yeah, the Pentagon will be facing a lot of questions about that. Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you for joining us with your expertise this morning.
23: You bet, Caitlin.
2: Meantime, Denver this
1: morning has become the fifth city in the country to be sent migrants from the state of Texas. The city of Denver is saying they received a bus of forty-one migrants yesterday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott writing, quote, until the president and his administration step up to fulfill their constitutional duty to secure the border, the state of Texas will continue busing migrants to self-declared sanctuary cities like Denver to provide much needed relief to our smaller border towns. Now, Texas has previously bused migrants to Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago and Philadelphia. And here in New York, New York City Mayor Eric Adams says the city is bracing for the arrival of 15 more buses carrying asylum seekers in just the next few days. A new arrival center opens today with hundreds of rooms held for those migrants at the Roosevelt Hotel. It is the ninth humanitarian emergency response and relief center in the city. Our Polo Sandoval is live in New York outside of that hotel and migrant arrival center. It's been tens of thousands of migrants that have arrived here in New York, and it has uh, enraged some parents that some of them have been um, housed in public school gymnasiums. Are they moving away from that to these hotels or is this in addition to that?
24: That's that's the indication, Poppy. And for important perspective here, that drop in migrant apprehensions that we witnessed along the southern border just about a week ago, that is not translated to any sort of relief in terms of what the city has been doing to try to keep up with the number of asylum seekers arriving in New York City. In fact, that number has only surged. There are two city council sources uh, that were invited to participate in a closed-door meeting with the Adams administration tell me that that number now has increased to close to 600. That is a dramatic increase over the uh, 2 to 300 that were arriving here just a couple of weeks. Mayor Adams sharing with the city council that he expects at least 15 buses to arrive in New York City from Texas in the coming days. We saw one such bus arrive at Port Authority just a few moments ago. The uh, migrant families aboard that bus then transferred onto an MTA bus that came uh, to, the, to, to this welcome center that was just opened up today. In fact, we may have some footage to show you. that shows some of these families. Now, this is that welcome center that the city has been working to open. Basically, the main hub where many of these asylum seekers that come in from, other, for, for, from the southern border will make their first stop. In some cases, especially those families with children, will potentially be able to shelter here As for those uh, migrants that do not have children, they will likely end up in the more common spaces uh, in in terms of the shelter system. But really what we have is the city trying to still keep up with the demand as they expect these numbers to continue to rise. There is a possibility that we could see them drop eventually, but that at this point is not the case uh, as the city continues to, again, keep up with, uh, uh, with, 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 with shelter needs. Now, finally, I can tell you that the city continues to to ask city officials throughout the the region to look for other options. And for now, this is going to be one of their solutions to house them here, in addition to well over 100 shelters that have opened up.
1: What about the funding? That is what the governor, Governor Hochul, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, have been pleading for uh, much more federal funding. Where, Where is this city on that and the state on that? And also, what's the mayor saying this morning about this new arrival?
24: So initially, the city had put in a request for well over three hundred million dollars in FEMA funding. You recall that happened uh, earlier this year. Well, recently FEMA then out that decision, and deciding that only about thirty million dollars would be allotted to New York City efforts. Is saying that they really wanted to focus. Federal officials wanted to focus on the immediate border regions. Uh, they did say, however, that New York City received uh, some of the most funding out of any other inland community. But the mayor says that is still not enough. What he continues to call for is the Biden administration to step in and work out this issue of the work authorizations that, Poppy, we've talked about at length in the past.
2: Yeah, we have Polo again. Great reporting. Thank you for being there for us this morning. Meanwhile, in Washington, lawmakers on Capitol Hill got into a pretty explosive argument yesterday over whether or not those three self-proclaimed FBI whistleblowers are actually whistleblowers.
7: Mr.
17: Chairman, these he individuals said, have been determined not, not to be whistleblowers. To these are not whistleblowers. They've been determined by the agency not to be whistleblowers. Are you deciding that they're whistleblowers?
0: Yes, the law decides. Did you not listen to Mr. Levitt's testimony? Do you not read the law? His the law decides is that, they the is that they are whistleblowers. The attorney is asserting that the
2: That was an exchange between Republican Congressman Jim Jordan and Stacey Plaskett, a Democrat on that committee, Jim Jordan called on three men to testify yesterday as part of his efforts to, in his words, show that the FBI is weaponizing itself against conservatives. The three people that he invited to testify said the agency retaliated against them for not towing the line during the investigations into January 6th.
17: Nonetheless, the FBI cynically elected to close ranks and attack the messenger.
0: Despite my history of unblemished service to the United States, the FBI suspended my security clearance accusing me of actually being disloyal to my country.
2: But if you watched that, it's also important to note that before the hearing, the FBI actually sent a letter to Congressman Jordan's subcommittee. In it, the agency said that officials stripped two of those three men that you saw there who testified of their security clearances after multiple violations and security concerns. The agency says that both men also expressed alternate theories about the attack on the Capitol.
1: Ahead, Senator Dianne Feinstein's office contradicting her denial about complications that she has endured from shingles. The new revelations about her health ahead.
2: Also, Disney's battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is only heating up as the company now says it is scrapping plans that would have brought thousands of jobs to Florida ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome
1: back. We are learning a lot more this morning about the illness that kept Senator Dianne Feinstein away from Washington for nearly three months. Senator Feinstein's office has confirmed to CNN the 89-year-old lawmaker had encephalitis and still suffers from Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. This is after Senator Feinstein told reporters that she just had, quote, a bad flu amid ongoing questions about her and and her her mental wherewithal as she's returned to the Senate. Our Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Sanjay, good morning. Uh, Good morning. Her office is now saying yes, she had encephalitis. They're seeing it resolved on its own. Can you give us a sense of how serious this can be, especially for older people?
8: Yeah, I mean, this can be really serious. I mean, people have often heard the term meningitis, which uh, refers to sort of an inflammation of the lining of the brain, the outer lining of the brain. With encephalitis here, it's really the brain. Encephalitis is an inflammation of the entire brain or certainly large parts of the brain. And, you know, for obvious reasons, that can be significant. It can be challenging to diagnose initially because people may have fever, they may have headache, they may have symptoms that sort of overlap with other things. But they also develop other symptoms, you know, confusion, um, lethargy, uh, sometimes even weakness, uh, things like that. Seizures could be a possibility. People can die from this. Mm. In someone who is 89 years old, um, likely her immune system was weakened already. She had shingles. That was probably the sort of instigating event here, which led to all these other problems. But it can take a while to resolve. Even if the fever and headache and sort of the short term symptoms resolve more quickly. The longer-term symptoms, that could take months uh, sometimes. Some people never really have full resolution.
2: Sanjay, you mentioned that it's hard to diagnose. Why is it so hard to diagnose?
8: Well, you know, a lot of times you have to have some sort of suspicion. Um, Again, the initial symptoms, uh, they can seem like uh, uh, flu-like symptoms, for example. So you have to have suspicion. And then you have to do these tests to, to really... Uh, be be certain of the diagnosis. An MRI scan may show inflammation of the brain. Is it enough inflammation to say encephalitis? They may do EEG to see if this is affecting the electrical patterns in the brain. And then even a lumbar puncture. When you do a lumbar puncture, you're taking fluid that bathes the brain and the spinal cord, and you're basically trying to determine does that fluid have evidence of the virus or evidence that the virus had been there in some way. So, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging. And then also to know exactly at what point do you say it is resolved, mm-hmm. that can be a challenge as well. Young or old, it can be hard, but especially challenging in the, old, in the elderly.
1: And on top of this, she's still having complications from what's known as Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. I yeah. certainly don't know much about that. I think most of our viewers probably don't know. So what is it and, and how can it affect someone, especially in a key role like hers?
8: Yeah, you know, a lot of people have heard of shingles. And what shingles is, is if you've had chicken pox as a kid, the virus that caused that likely never left your body, just sort of stays dormant. And then for some reason, when you're an adult, it reactivates. That's why people get the shingles vaccine when they turn 50, they should get it. Um, in this case, it can be reactivated for all sorts of reasons, and it can infect different nerves. With Ramsay Hunt, I'm gonna show you this image here, it affects a specific nerve uh, in the face. It's called the mm-hmm. facial nerve. And you can see it there. If you look at somebody's face who has had Ramsay Hunter, who has it, their face will look sort of frozen or even paralyzed. It can affect their eyes. It can affect their mouth. They can develop ulcerations. It, they can affect their hearing. It can be really painful. Anybody who's had shingles knows how painful it can be. Now, superimpose that on your face and inside your ear, inside your mouth. That's what that is. Uh, you may have heard of Bell's Palsy. Yeah. Um, it's similar to Bell's Palsy. Mm-hmm except think of this as, as more serious. It can, it can be more severe in terms of symptoms and it can take longer to resolve. Now, you treat it with antivirals, because again, it's a virus that probably caused all this in the first place. You use antivirals, you use steroids. If you use those things quickly, more likely to recover. But just like with encephalitis, it can take a while. Mm-hmm.
1: Sandhya Gupta, thank you doctor very much for helping us understand it. all this.
2: Yeah, got just it. get a picture of what she's going yeah. through. All right. Speaking of politics in Washington, Governor Ron DeSantis has been privately telling donors he believes there's only two people who can win the 2024 election. He is one of them. The other President Biden. Is he right? We're going to talk about that next. And of course, the third person there for President Trump. Biden, Trump and me. That's a quote from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, how he sees the 2024 race playing out as he is expected to enter it himself in just a few days from now, making it official. According to The New York Times, Governor DeSantis told donors on a call yesterday that he believes there are only three credible candidates, adding, and I'm quoting the Florida governor now, I think of those two, those three, two have a chance to get elected president, Biden and me. Based on all the data in the swing stage, which is not great for the former president and probably insurmountable because people aren't going to change their view of him. Sources tell CNN that DeSantis is expected to file his presidential campaign paperwork next week. His plan to defeat Donald Trump? Run to the right of him when it comes to abortion, guns, transgender rights. This week, he responded to the former president's criticism that Florida's new abortion restrictions were too tough.
7: I signed the bill. I was proud to do it. He won't answer whether he would sign it or not.
2: The president, noting there that the former president did not say what abortion law he would sign into that. Of course, probably, you know, it's not just rhetoric that's coming from DeSantis. That's right. It's what is he doing? And here's a look at what he's done just recently. He has signed a
1: six-week abortion ban, one of the most restrictive in the country. He has ended concealed weapons permits. He has banned gender-affirming care for trans youth. He's restricted drag shows. He's blocked advanced placement in African-American studies. He has prohibited vaccine mandates and expelled, uh, expanded, I should note, the law that critics call the don't say gay law. Now, DeSantis and Disney have been feuding on this issue, the last one I mentioned, for more than a year. But yesterday... The media giant upped the ante. Disney scrapped its plans to build a billion dollar office complex in central Florida, citing challenging business conditions. They didn't name DeSantis directly, but this will cost the state of Florida 2000 white collar jobs. A spokesperson for DeSantis said it was unsurprising that Disney would cancel the project, saying, quote, given the company's financial straits, falling market cap and declining stock price. Now, pres- former President Trump's campaign put out a statement arguing that DeSantis, quote, single-handedly lost Florida more than 2,000 jobs. Former Vice President Mike Pence, who's also eyeing a 2024 run, weighed
3: in. I'm not terribly surprised to see Disney canceling a billion-dollar contract that's only, only going to harm people in the Orlando and, and Florida area. And, and it's uh, one more reason why, uh, well, as a limited government conservative, uh, I, I've said for months now that I, I, I think both sides ought to stand down.
2: Joining us now to discuss, CNN political commentator and former Trump White House communications director, Alyssa Farrow-Griffin, and our CNN political analyst, Natasha Alford. Thank you both for being here. Morning. This call is pretty remarkable in the sense that DeSantis has been towing around the criticism of Trump. This is probably... His most direct shot yet, telling donors this guy cannot cannot be Biden.
18: And while I tend to agree with him in a general election, I think 2020 bore that out. And I don't see Donald Trump picking up more swing voters or more independents in 2024. The numbers in the general um, are very comparable. DeSantis head to head with Biden as they are Trump head to head with Biden. The electability argument is a decent one for Desantis to make, but that cannot be the whole thing. He has to take Trump on directly, and he has to draw policy juxtaposition into the point you read in the open, which is he's actually in many ways running to the right of Trump, which means you're shrinking the pool of voters to potentially support you even more. Um, the, Disney, real quick. The, I mean, and I should mention I'm partially employed by Disney, but um, it is a it is a this was a tremendous misstep by him, losing 2,000 jobs for the state with a median salary of $120,000. And now his team, um, what they're going to frame it as, what they're kind of spinning it as, is to say um, this project was likely going to be on hold anyway. Disney's gone through massive layoffs. Um, But there's property records in Orlando that show as recently as mid-March they were moving forward on groundbreaking.
1: I will say some of the reporting has been that uh, Bob Chapek, the former CEO of Disney, had been more of a proponent of this than Bob Iger. But still, clearly, DeSantis isn't making making it any more any more welcoming for Disney in Florida, that's for sure. Natasha, I thought it was interesting that former President Trump came out after this and said, look, uh, DeSantis got caught in the mousetrap, his words, and and says that he basically failed in this war and that Disney's going to prevail.
25: Yeah, I think that there was a miscalculation in terms of, you know, how long you can beat up on Mickey Mouse, right, and uh, not have some sort of backlash. And again, I think this, the... Once you can make a case that it's affecting business, that you're losing jobs, that you're losing money, DeSantis's argument that he is the one who sort of keeps business together for Florida just isn't as strong anymore. And I'm a little bit confused by the play to, to go so hard to the right, because if you look at national mm-hmm. polling, people are saying that the rollback on abortion rights is going too far. Isn't and that is it just includes to win a primary? At, but at, what do you do after that? Well, you right? pivot. <laughs> right. But, but how far can you pivot when you say, you know, six week abortion ban, and that's out of line with even yeah. many Republicans who are, are polling and saying that they want medication abortion available, for example. Um, so it just seems a little bit out of step with the majority mm-hmm. of the country.
2: What I was struck by is on, also on this call with donors. He didn't really get into the cultural issues, the divisive mm-hmm. issues that he's talked about. He kind of stayed away from those, but he did talk about trying to frame himself as better for the party and talking about, I mean, this is a call with donors. And he was saying he's not just raising money for himself. That's another shot at Trump, who was sitting on a huge pile of cash during the midterm elections, that people complained he got involved to spend money way too late for it to even make a difference. And that,
18: all of that's true. And Ron DeSantis, by the way, has a huge war chest right now, uh, the second biggest, um, as at least what we know at this time, compared to Donald Trump. And he did boost other candidates on the ballot in Florida. He was kind of the one bright spot on midterm day for Republicans. But... If you think of where he's been since November 2020 to now, it's been a series of missteps. It's been a series of precipitous drops in the polls. And I think there's a number of factors in that. Trump has defined him. Trump has, we, we, I know Ron DeSantis decently well. He's not like some super bizarre person you can't have a conversation with. He's not necessarily the most gregarious man either. But Donald Trump has defined him as somebody with zero personality who needs a personality transplant. He's talked about him being bad for business. And DeSantis won't hit him back. If he thinks that he's ready to be the front runner for the GOP nomination, he needs to be able to define his opponent, Donald Trump, and he needs to be able to hit back. And I've yet to see any evidence he can do that. So,
1: so DeSantis is going to announce our reporting is next week officially run. Um, Tim Scott is going to do that on Monday. Mm-hmm. What do you think?
25: Well, Tim Scott, you know, he—if you look at a poll of South Carolina voters—he's still coming in fourth after Trump, after DeSantis, after Nikki Haley, and that's lot in of money. his own state. $22 million war chest, which is great. You know, you have this historic positioning, right? One of three black U.S. senators, the the only black Republican senator. Um, but You know, I I don't want to undermine the ambition, but I think that some people may see him as a vice presidential candidate. Right. Mm -hmm. A boost, although he would never say that, um, it's just hard to see him being the front runner at this time. But that doesn't mean there isn't a benefit to him being on the stage. The accusation that the GOP is not diverse enough, um, that they have issues with race, just his mere presence shifts that dynamic.
2: And he's probably one of the best liked senators in Washington from people on both sides. You used to work at the Pentagon. We, I have to talk about Governor Yunkin of Virginia, who is also fueling his own 2024 buzz, whether or not he's going to get in after it seemed maybe he wasn't. He put out this ad. It was very Reagan-esque. But one misstep that they made is they misidentified a, a foreign fighter jet in there as an American one. Um, great eyes, this is something that happens so often and it drives
18: anyone in the defense community mad. for a Republican in a state where they've got all these military bases... You've got to be careful with your stock imagery because it was very clearly um, not a U.S. fighter jet. That, I thought, was very interesting because Yunkin has come out and said that he's not running. Um, The consultant who's expected to run his race has been with DeSantis. I don't know if this was an ad that maybe was previously cut and he's just using it for Virginia or he's wanting to keep his name ID boosted as a potential to still do something. But Anyone who's going to get into the field needs to be in, I would say, by June, like after Memorial Day. After that, you're just there's so many you're missing fundraising windows. You're missing time to build your name ID. So folks need to get in quickly.
25: I think there's an opportunity for name recognition. Everything that he's done in Virginia fits Mm -hmm. into the larger cultural conversation we're having. The attacks on CRT, this idea of supporting parental rights. So either way, I feel like there's a benefit for him, even if he doesn't have a legitimate shot at taking the White House.
2: Alyssa, Natasha. Thanks, guys. Two great political minds to talk about all of this with. So, thank you both. Thank you. The Supreme Court also delivering a major victory for social media platforms, allowing the companies to avoid lawsuits for now that stem from terror related content. We have the implications of that ruling next. Also, Montana's
1: TikTok ban already facing a legal challenge. We're going to be joined by a TikTok influencer from the state. What does she think?
2: New this morning, we are getting a clearer picture of when potential charges may come in that Atlanta area investigation into former President Trump and many of his allies and 2020 election interference. We have previously reported here at CNN that possible indictments were expected over the summer. But now the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, that you see here, is showing signs they could be unsealed in August. The New York Times reports that Willis has announced remote work days for a lot of her staff for the first three weeks in the month. Even asking that judges avoid scheduling trials during that period. Obviously, this is something the former president's legal team is keeping a close eye on. August is also the scheduled date for that first Republican primary debate.
1: That's right. Also this, a big win yesterday for social media companies in a pair of cases. One brought against Google, the other brought against Twitter. The Supreme Court Preserve social media companies' ability to avoid lawsuits stemming from terror-related content. In the case against Twitter, the Supreme Court ruled that the company will not have to face accusations that it aided and abetted terrorism when it hosted content by ISIS. The court also dismissed a case against Google, sent it to the lower court, which was accused of hosting radical content the plaintiffs allege, led to the death of their daughter in that 2015 terror attack in Paris. To understand this all and what it means big picture, we're joined by CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Sarah, thanks so much for coming in. This was a huge deal, um, not only for the families and the Gonzalez family in the Google case, but just writ large for what the responsibility is of social media companies. And the bottom line is they continue to get a pass um, under Section 230 of the community. CDA. Yes,
20: exactly. So it's going to be a lot harder for anybody who wants to sue a tech company for responsibility about what a third party says. And that's because the court had the decision whether or not it wanted to reevaluate this longtime law. And essentially, by deciding not to, they've punted it to Congress. So Congress, which passed this law in 1995, could go and reverse it. The challenge is, Poppy, there's been no really good, you know, suggestions put forward on what we would replace it with. And I think that's why we're at a standstill. We know that the Internet as it is, it needs a little bit more moderation. But we don't know how to do that without completely breaking the Internet as we know it today.
2: And what they seem to signal yesterday is that they're basically passing on it for now. I mean, obviously, this is something that is likely going to be a recurring issue. But when you mention Capitol Hill, you you always see these Republicans, and some Democrats too, but a lot of Republicans talking about Section 230 and the protection that these companies get and railing against it and promising to do something. But you never actually see something materialize on that front. I mean, it's difficult, but... It seems like a lot of talk and very little action on it.
20: That's right. It's a politically motivated issue, right? Republicans love to say that they're being censored by big tech and that you should take away their protections so that they don't have to be censored. But the challenge is, Caitlin, we like to think that these laws give protection to Google and Facebook and the big guys. They also give protection to a lot of smaller apps that we use every day. How many times... When you go to book a hotel, do you look at pictures of it on TripAdvisor or you look at pictures of a restaurant on Yelp or you want to add something in a comment section because you buy a lotion and it doesn't work? All of that stuff is protected by Section 230 as well. And so if we were to remove these protections, it's not just big tech, it's their local newspapers, comment sections, it's the Yelps of the world, it's all these other sites. I think that's why it's hard for Republicans and Congress writ large to just break this rule because it would have such sweeping impact on a lot of different sites.
1: Uh, Marsha Blackburn, for example, had talked about and she's been a big voice in this, you know, whether a senator
2: from Tennessee. uh, Yeah.
1: And another case coming forward before the same court making the same argument as a Gonzalez family made may have a better chance here because the court didn't really rule on the merits here at all. The court just sent it unanimously, interestingly, down. Right. And so I just wonder if you think that there is much more to come on this, because you have if Congress isn't going to solve it, the court has to weigh in here on Section 230 because that was written in a very different time than what the internet and social media is
20: now so yes and no and here's why the supreme court's job is to interpret complicated laws section 230 of the communications decency act is not a complicated law exactly it's actually very straightforward in what it says these platforms are protected and not and so technically if you would want to revisit this this really is the job of congress to rewrite the law to repeal it etc i don't know that the court has that much power Mm -hmm. at this point very interesting,
2: Sarah Fisher, thank you.
20: thank you. Thank you.
2: The legal challenges, speaking of, are beginning over Montana's TikTok ban. This is a ban that wasn't just for government devices. This was for personal devices as well. And now five content creators are suing the state's attorney general, arguing that this ban violates their First Amendment rights. The governor there, Greg Gianforte, says he believes the law that he signed will protect Montana's personal and private data from the Chinese Communist Party, if the law is upheld, hundreds of thousands of TikTok users in Montana will no longer have access to that app starting January 1st, like Kylie Nelson
19: got another realistic day in the life of a fashion influencer living in montana it is finally freaking nice out so i enjoy starting my day off with a little walk to soak up some sun before sitting in my office okay. can't forget breakfast for these guys look at how cute diesel was today is a full-blown office day i need to approve my sunday newsletter to go out return some emails there's a couple brand deals that i'm trying to negotiate and then update my website always post an outfit reel so this was my outfit for the day
2: And Kylie Nelson joins us now. She is a fashion and lifestyle influencer who is based in Montana, has over 200,000 followers on TikTok. We should note she is not one of those content creators who is challenging the state's ban, but she would certainly be affected by it. Kylie, I know you get a lot of your income from your presence on TikTok and from the way you use this platform. What was your reaction when you heard that the governor had signed this ban into law?
19: I do. I'm not going to lie. I was a little shocked and surprised it's been in talk for a long time, and especially this past month when they said that it was going to be just state. But when it came to that it's going to be all of us, I was I was actually pretty shocked.
1: Do you share any of the concerns, Kylie, that, um, for example, the head of the FBI, Chris Ray, or the CIA director, Bill Burns, have because they're concerned about the ability for China, because TikTok's owned by a Chinese company, to access data, mm-hmm. inclu- you know, like
19: your data or anyone's data. Does that concern you at all? I 100 percent am concerned of that. I hear that. I respect that. I just haven't seen the proof of it yet. Right. So that's kind of what I'm waiting for. At the end of the day, I am a law abiding citizen. And so if it does happen, then it is what it is. Yeah,
1: I think that's a fair point. TikTok has said it's never been asked to provide nor has provided user data to the Chinese government.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of concerns yes. about this, obviously. But I know also the concerns that someone like you would have is, is about your income because... Yeah. Some mm-hmm. people, in our, if our audience, you know, a lot, it's like a lot of younger people who use TikTok, you can't get the same kind of growth, you say, from an Instagram or
19: from, from another app. You get pr- this primarily from TikTok. Is that right? Influencer. I'm Correct. From my understanding, TikTok was created specifically for TikTok growth, so I've been on Instagram for, gosh, probably almost 10 years and I have about 70,000 followers and it's been less than two years that I've been showing up consistently on TikTok and I'm already at over 200,000 uh, of my audience. So you definitely get a lot more growth compared to other apps. So I think that's what kind of sets it apart from the other ones. Totally set apart because its algorithm is
1: so effective uh, in terms yes, of targeting. it's a discovery platform. More than anyone. Yep. C- can I ask what you'll do if For example, Montana prevails in these legal challenges. I just wonder, I mean, you support your family this way. Would you leave the state?
19: I wouldn't leave the state. Like I said, I am a law-abiding citizen. And it's just we're going to have to pivot. I always say that every platform, it has its time and its place. Going all the way back to MySpace, Facebook, (sighs) Vine. I even kind of think that it's fair to put like Instagram in that category, too. And so there's always going to be a new platform that comes along. And I think this is a great reminder to content creators to make sure that we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket and that we're making sure that we're equally spreading our content along all other the platforms.
1: It's a, it's a great point. Thank you for helping us put sort of the human yes. face, the face on yeah. what this means for people that rely <laughs> yeah. on this platform. Thanks, Keep guys. It.
19: Yes. yes. Thank you.
1: All right. Game one of the NHL. Eastern Conference Final, going the distance, and then some. The Panthers and Hurricanes went back and forth for nearly six hours before it ended at 2 a.m. Eastern.
9: All right, here's Brent Burns, keeps it to the outside. Sam Bennett keeps it in out front. Kachuk, a shot, he
26: scores! He scores! Matthew Kachuk, the overtime winner! The
27: Panthers take game one, three, two, the final.
1: Wow, the game winner came with less than thir- the game winning goal, I should say, came with less than 13 seconds remaining in the fourth overtime. That makes it the sixth longest game in NHL history. The Panthers won't have a lot of time to celebrate. Game 2 is tomorrow night, less than 48 hours after the teams played more than two full games worth of hockey. Ooh. CNN is learning that Ukraine's President Zelensky will attend the G7 summit in Japan in person. The meeting comes during a critical moment in the war. We're live in Japan next.
2: Also, a new study finds that Manhattan is sinking under the weight of its skyscrapers. Great news for us. What? Can anything we done to stop it? We'll be oh back with that in a moment. <laughs> More CNN this morning to come after the break.
1: That's a live look at beautiful New York City, but you better look now because apparently it's sinking. According to a new geological study, the city's skyscrapers are so heavy, they are weighing down the island. Together, they weigh nearly 1.7 trillion pounds. The study comes as the Army Corps of Engineers is racing to find ways to prevent the city from being submerged during future natural disasters. Oh my gosh, Bill. We both live by the water in Brooklyn, and I like it, and I would like to remain above sea level.
26: Well, you have a lot of people working on just that. I don't know if you guys can feel Hudson Yards sinking. Sinking. It's really slow. (laughs) It's only about the thickness of a couple of couple of nickels. Uh, that's about it. Over the, That's the average of the whole city over a year. But certain parts of the city, depending on the soil, depending on groundwater, is sinking faster than others. Staten Island more vulnerable here. The problem is, I mean, it's very cool that now we can answer our kids when they ask, how much does New York City weigh? Uh, 1.7 trillion pounds. The problem is the 1.7 trillion tons of carbon dioxide that is in the sea and sky, that is melting polar ice and raising sea levels slowly, so while the city... Is going down, the water's coming up. And that is a headache for leaders on coastal cities around the world. Poppy, Kaylin?
2: It is a headache. And of course, you know, I'm some, I just moved here, obviously, I haven't been here that long. Where exactly are you standing right now, Bill?
26: I am in Dumbo, Brooklyn, which stands for Down Under the Manhattan Bridge Overpass. The Brooklyn Bridge behind me, that's the Manhattan Bridge. This over here is Jane's Carousel which there are haunting images of this flooding during Superstorm Sandy nine years ago. The waves bashing up against that glass it held. But even right now, they are shoring up the banks of the East River. This is a revetment process where they lay down liners and then put big rocks on top of it. But the Army Corps of Engineers is actually working right now on a plan to build seawalls all around New York City in various places, depending on public comments. It's all a trade-off now as we think about living in this new world. Lower Manhattan, obviously the financial center of the universe in many places. So protecting that with engineering uh, in our lifetimes is going to be a new, very expensive reality.
2: Yeah, that's one way to start your Friday morning. Manhattan is sinking. Good morning to everyone. Bill Weir, thank you. Thanks, Bill.
17: (laughs) So make the most of your day.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, TJIF has a whole new meaning. Um, All right, Santa This Morning continues right now all right good morning everyone manhattan may be sinking
1: but we're still here with you this morning and And we've got some headlines to be and we've got some headlines global headlines for you let's begin here big news this morning ukraine's president vladimir Zelensky heading in person to the g7 summit in japan to meet face to face with president biden and other world leaders
2: also that accused pentagon leaker is going to appear in court just a few hours from now as former and current defense defense officials are expressing alarm that the young airman kept his job even after he'd been reported multiple times to commanders for mishandling classified intelligence.
1: Disney just delivered a huge $1 billion blow to Ron DeSantis's Florida right before he's expected to announce a run for president. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now.
2: And we've been tracking developments really all morning out of Japan this morning where the White House now says President Biden left dinner early with world leaders at the G7 summit there to get an update on what's happening back in Washington on those debt limit talks. The crisis in D.C. has overshadowed, really just loomed over this crucial foreign trip during a critical moment in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is a photo of the president receiving that virtual briefing that he got earlier this morning from his negotiators in D.C. late at night in Japan as we are now learning that Ukrainian President Zelensky himself is going to be meeting with President Biden and the other world leaders at the summit on Sunday. Right now, Zelensky has just landed in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, to meet with the Arab League. You're seeing him right now address the leaders in that room when it comes to what is happening in his own country. He has been on a whirlwind diplomatic tour, making several stops across Europe to meet with allies in recent days. Zelensky is pleading with them for more weapons as his own forces are preparing for a major counteroffensive. We're now told that one of those top things that is going to be discussed at the G7 summit where President Biden is, is whether or not to send the F-16 fighter jets to help Ukraine's air force. CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly, is live in Hiroshima. Phil, obviously a lot going on for the president at all times, but right now, especially as, you know, he's meeting with these world leaders, F-16s are on the table, but he's also going back and getting an update from Washington on what's happening with these debt limit talks.
3: Yet the convergence of enormously consequential issues on the world stage. As you noted, the president leaving that working dinner of G7 leaders earlier this evening arrived at his hotel about 10 minutes ago, where he is expected to be briefed by his senior staff and negotiating team on those ongoing debt limit talks for the second time in the course of this day. And that all coming after a day that was very centrally focused on a major issue of geopolitical consequence. The war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion now more than a year old, and the G7 has really been the, the cornerstone of the Western democracies' alliance to support Ukraine. And it has been steadfast support, durable support, and support President Biden and his national security team plan to utilize this summit here in Hiroshima to try and maintain. It will get some help in that effort when President Zelensky arrives in person. Okay, you know this very well, The President Zelensky has appeared at all of these summits, whether NATO, G7, uh, over the course of the last couple of years, virtually. He started traveling out of the country last year, heading to the White House in December. As you noted, he's been on a European capital tour of sorts, France, uh, the UK, Italy, Germany, In each stop, he is making very clear, at a very critical moment for this conflict, one in which the Ukrainian military is expected to start a counteroffensive soon, they need more of just about everything. But most importantly, defensive and weapons capabilities. And that is a message he plans to deliver here, as you noted The uh, debate over F-16s and what the process is for that is still ongoing. But as the U.S. and its allies uh, start to launch a new round of sanctions, try and tighten the screws economically, defense assistance and the message that will be delivered by President Zelensky when he arrives here Saturday night to meet with these leaders on Sunday is an absolutely critical component of a war that shows no sign of ending anytime soon. But certainly Western allies need to see and want to see progress in that conflict given the scale of the support and the necessity of that support continuing, guys.
2: Yeah, and just to speak to what he's up against, you know, the meeting he's in right now in Saudi Arabia, Syria's president is also in the room. That's one of Putin's closest allies. Just fascinating to see him on the world stage. Phil Mattingly, thank you. So let's talk about this
1: and a lot more with Colorado Congressman Jason Crowe. He's a former U.S. Army Ranger, served in Afghanistan. He's also a member of the House Foreign Affairs and the House Intelligence Committee. So perfect person to talk to this morning about all of this. Good morning, Congressman. Hi. Good morning. What is the significance? We've all learned this morning that uh, the Ukrainian president will go in person to the G7. We know a key thing he's going to ask for again is those F-16s, which you had been urging the administration for months to send or allow to be sent. How key that Zelensky going in person for this?
6: Well,
17: it's very important. We all know an in-person appeal is much better than a written one or, or a remote appeal. And, and, you know, Zelensky is an incredible messenger. He's a very charismatic mm-hmm. leader. When he makes those personal connections, uh, they're very powerful. I've had the opportunity to sit down with him. Um, you know, uh, in person uh, during an extended period at least once and, and spoke with him over the phone and, and Zoom on a couple of other occasions. So he knows what he's talking about. He knows what his country needs and he's going to make that appeal. And like you said, I've long been pushing for F-16s or, or fourth generation fighters. It could be another type of fourth generation fighter. It doesn't have to be an F-16, but they do need that capability. Uh, that That capability to establish air superiority and to support ground operations is really essential right now.
2: Congressman, we pay close attention to what the White House is saying about this. We had John Kirby from the yeah. National Security Council on yesterday. He did not say they are against sending the F-16s. He, he kind of said it's a constantly evolving conversation. It seemed like if you're reading between the lines, they may be expressing openness to this. If the U.S. does not allow the F-16s to go to Ukraine, do you think that's a mistake?
17: Well, John Kirby is is right in that uh, they've been pushing hard. They've been doing a remarkable job providing support for Ukraine. I mean, the United States has been leading this coalition, a, a coalition of over 50 countries to provide support. Uh, and, and I have been pushing the administration. I do disagree with them about the provision of fourth generation fighters, whether that be F-16s or working with our allies to do something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what uh, what we need to do is actually equip Ukraine uh, with a full complement of weapons and equipment to conduct what's called combined arms warfare. We are actually training them and helping them conduct a different style of warfare. Uh, the Russians are still using the old Soviet Union-style tactics uh, where they just pound the other side with artillery. The Ukrainians have been used to doing that. That's what they were trained on. We're training them to do it differently, where you actually coordinate aircraft with the ground forces, with intelligence, with, commun- with modern communications, and all of those work uh, in synchronicity with one another. But you can't do that unless you have all those pieces, those, those main battle tanks, those long-range artillery fires, uh, those aircraft. Uh, so no one piece is decisive in, in and of itself. I mean, HIMARS alone won't do it. Aircraft alone won't do it. Tanks alone won't do it. But all together, when you have that entire puzzle, it's extremely powerful.
1: Staying on on Ukraine and funding and aid, uh, this is pretty stunning that the Pentagon has now made public. We know something that they apparently knew two months ago, and that is that they miscalculated the amount of aid they'd given by $3 billion in terms of weapons valuation. That has come to major concern uh, some of your fellow colleagues on your committees, but also in the House uh, more broadly, including uh, Mike McCall and Mike Rogers, who said this is extremely problematic to say the least, these funds could have been used for extra supplies and weapons for the upcoming counteroffensive. The concern here is, and I wonder if you share it, Congressman, that the fact that this wasn't disclosed months ago and the fact that the miscalculation was made means that spending that $3 billion now on more weaponry for Ukraine is going to come too late for this counteroffensive.
17: Well, let's not politicize this and actually look at the issue uh, as a fact, uh, so there 's bad news here, and there 's good news here. The bad news is is that the Department of Defense still can 't pass an audit in its entire history over many decades. It cannot account properly for what it owns, where where those things are, and what those things cost uh, for decades it 's been unable to do that because it is a massive sprawling organization and as a lawmaker i 've been pushing hard to get the DOD in a position to be able to actually pass an audit like any American family has to, like any American business has to. Uh, So that is a systematic thing that remains unchanged and that's in part what what happened here. The good news is is it doesn't appear as though this is gonna materially affect uh, the provision of our aid to Ukraine Uh, because we've been sending stuff very aggressively, very fast uh, for 16 months now to Ukraine Mm -hmm. and we'll continue to do that. Uh, So even if uh, we are able to provide more we have a supply chain issue and our, our partners have a supply chain issue. doesn't mean there is actually more to provide. Uh, you know, we can only produce munitions, equipments and weapons so fast. Uh, so having more money available and it's actually unclear how much more uh, we have available doesn't mean we can actually do more at this point.
2: So are you saying that the Republicans are wrong when they say that these funds could have been used for extra supplies and weapons for the upcoming counteroffensive?
17: I'm saying it's too early to tell. We just found out about this a couple of days ago. But do you uh, we think the Pentagon know. should have told uh, Congress sooner? What we do know is that the
2: Because they say that they found out, they discovered this good. two months ago.
17: Yeah, it would have been nice to know about this sooner. And I've been pushing the administration to actually engage with Congress, and this is more of a White House issue than a Pentagon issue, to engage with us about a supplemental because we know that funds are going to run out this year. We've known that for some time. Uh, So what we need to do is have that conversation now about what's necessary and what they're going to come and ask Congress for. And that would have been a good uh, piece of information to have to jumpstart that conversation for sure. But again, that doesn't mean that they haven't been very aggressive about providing aid, that we haven't been doing everything possible. Uh, And there's a difference between the quantity of aid and the type of aid. So I've been pushing for a change in the type of aid, uh, a policy change to provide ATACM's rockets, to provide fourth generation fighters, to expedite uh, the provision of Abrams tanks. That's different from the, the massive historic effort that this administration has undergone to provide artillery, to provide munitions, uh, to assist with the training of Ukrainians, which has gone superbly.
2: Yeah, the argument's not being made that they haven't funded Ukraine. Obviously, we've seen it happen on a massive scale. Just a big question about that. Accounting figure. Yeah, and what could have been done two
1: months ago had, had uh, people been told. Before you go, it, it, Caitlin and I th- think it's very notable that President Biden is leaving a dinner at the G7 early to get on a call with leading members of Congress to deal with the debt ceiling as we are days away from a potential default. What is your read on if Washington is actually going to get this done before June 1st?
17: Well, I don't think anybody really knows, but uh, actually, this illustrates the national security implications of mm. this brinksmanship that the Republicans are playing uh, about the debt ceiling. Because the, the president actually has nixed a visit; he has ended a visit to Guinea, uh, and, and the you know, the island nation of Guinea, which is actually very strategically important for our competition against China in uh, our um, expanded presence in in the Asian Pacific region, actually went out of their way to get security to to uh, you know set up an entire a dignitary, dignitary visit and to engage other island nations in that region. And we, he had to nix that trip to come back to assist with these negotiations. So some people refer to what the Republicans are doing as games. It's not a game uh, because it's not fun, it's not funny, uh, it, this is not entertaining. It's actually having real world implications uh, for our engagement overseas with our partners uh, encountering very real world threats uh, because they're playing, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're doing brinksmanship with this and it's not acceptable.
2: And you wanted a clean debt ceiling passed. That seems unlikely now as the White House is negotiating with Republicans on this. Are you willing to to walk away from wanting a clean debt ceiling and vote for some of these Republican spending cuts that they're demanding if that's the agreement that, that comes out of this?
17: Well, we've done a clean debt ceiling dozens of times. We did a, a, a bunch under the Trump administration, so there's no reason why we shouldn't do it now. Um, I'm going to wait to see what they actually come out of with negotiations. I never uh, answer hypotheticals and I have no idea what that hypothetical will be. So I'm going to see what the president and Speaker McCarthy come up with and, and then I'll make a decision.
2: All right. Congressman Jason Crow, thank you so much for your time this morning and as always. Thank you. All right, in just hours from now, the Air National Guardsman who is accused of leaking classified military documents online is set to appear in court in Massachusetts. A federal judge is expected to decide whether or not the person you see here, 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, should be released to his parents' home as he is awaiting trial. Armed agents arrested him in a remarkable scene outside of his home last month. The feds have accused him of posting hundreds of pages of classified documents on Discord, which is a social media platform. It was revealed just days ago in court, new court documents that prosecutors said his own bosses had warned him multiple times about his mishandling of classified information. CNN's Jason Carroll is live outside the federal courthouse and has been covering this closely. Jason, what are the arguments that are going to be made in court for why he should not be released to his parents' home?
7: Well, Caitlin, as you can imagine, the judge in this case has a lot to consider, especially when you consider all of the new information, new evidence that comes to light, that has come to light, including that new uh, video that's come to light showing Shara firing a weapon and using racial slurs. Prosecutors are saying that, again, this is something that goes to his character. But also this week, prosecutors filed new evidence uh, with the court showing that, once again, uh, Teixeira, on three different occasions, had tried to access uh, classified information. Uh, Going back to October and uh, September of last year, for example, they point to this example of where he access classified information, wrote a note about it, put it in his pocket. His supervisor saw what happened, told him not to do that again. He was admonished by his supervisors, but then went on to brag about it online saying, quote, all of the expletive I've told you guys, I'm not supposed to. Man, how expletive up is it? I can type out all of this and still be ready for more, but can barely get through a two page college paper. Prosecutors also wrote to the judge saying the weight of the evidence against the defendant has only grown stronger and the risk the defendant poses, if released, have only come sharper into focus. The defense for its part, Caitlin, also writing to the judge saying, look, this man does not pose a threat anymore. They also provided several examples of people in the past who were charged with the Espionage Act but were also released on bail with conditions. So the judge, again, much to consider when this hearing gets underway later this afternoon.
2: Yeah,
1: Caitlin. and
7: all of this
2: just raising questions about how time and time again, there were such clear concerns about what he was doing, yet he continued mm. uh, to have access to this information. Jason Carroll, keep us updated on what the judge decides. Meanwhile, healthcare professionals are warning the nationwide drug shortage could mean life or death for some cancer patients we're going to ask one expert what is being done to prevent the worst. Also,
1: Disney escalating its battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Canceling plans to build a billion-dollar office complex there. What impact could this have on DeSantis's run, when she's going to announce next week? More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
2: Healthcare professionals and experts are warning now that a nationwide drug shortage could have dire consequences for some. The New York Times reporting that, quote, thousands of patients are facing delays in getting treatments for cancer and other life-threatening diseases, with drug shortages in the U.S. approaching record levels. Right now, there's an active shortage of nearly two dozen chemotherapy drugs. Some experts say that the shortage could mean life or death for some of these patients. Joining us now is a professor of gynecology and the president-elect of the Society for Gynecologic Oncology, Dr. Amanda Fader. Good thing you are in charge of this and not me, doctor. Obviously, this is a real concern um, to see this. This is a really alarming study to say that these drug shortages could have such dire consequences.
15: Yeah, good morning, Caitlin, and thank you for having me. Um, to put things into perspective, drug shortages are not new and have existed in the U.S. for decades. But what is new and particularly problematic is the sheer number of drugs that are going undergoing shortage, and that's increasing year after year. And life-saving chemotherapy drugs that we use as the backbone of cancer treatments for adults and children across a wide variety of cancers now are in critical shortage and are often in the top five of, of drugs that are in shortage consistently. And so this is quickly approaching the level of a public health crisis because at this moment in time, we have 12 indispensable chemotherapy drugs that are currently in shortage. So what are you telling patients, doctor? I mean,
1: especially those in the most critical situations?
15: Yeah, so we at the Society of Gynecologic Oncology, we conducted a survey, uh, a nationwide survey of all of our members to get the scope of the problem and understand what was happening. And over the last four weeks Mm -hmm. in serving those 3,000 members, we found that initially it was uh, patients in smaller hospitals and, and infusion centers and rural centers that were most impacted But over the course of the last four weeks, we've seen uh, just an explosion of responses from oncologists around the nation. And we see now that large centers, cancer centers, urban centers, all centers are are being affected in some way by the crisis. And so one of our strategies, both at Johns Hopkins and, and, and within the Society of Gynecologic Oncology, is really we have a singular focus on the the health and well-being of our patients. And we are, uh, we are working with patients to help them uh, as much as possible receive standard of care therapies at their institutions, putting them in contact um, with the oncologists at their centers uh, to, to mitigate and develop the best strategies so that no patient is left behind. We should never be telling patients that they can't receive uh, the life-saving treatments that will, will, will keep them alive.
2: Yeah, I think everyone would agree with that. It, you say you've never seen a drug shortage this bad. But this is the reality that we are dealing with now. And so what's your guidance when it comes to, to ways that you could adjust treatments, adjust doses in order to basically stretch these out while the shortage is happening?
15: Yeah, so many medical societies like the Society of g Oncology, the American Society of Clinical Oncology Foundation, Women's Cancer, GOG Foundation, we're all working together to try to find best solutions here and developing opportunities to preserve drug supply that we have and use it responsibly and minimize waste. And there's techniques we can use at the pharmacy level in order to do that so not a drop of chemo is wasted and we can extend it, uh, get more mileage out of it for more patients. But we're also issuing uh, alternative drug guidelines uh, in situations where there's a scarcity of these drugs or a critical shortage. We're using best available evidence from clinical trials to to guide these recommendations. And uh, and in many cases, we do have excellent substitutes that will have similar efficacy as the standard of care drugs. In some cases, though, we do not have good substitutions and patients will receive inferior care. And so we're working with uh, national regulatory uh, associations that help uh, define the standards of care in the country and with insurance companies, so we can help get approval for some of these really critical uh, alternative drug regimens Uh, so that we can keep patients on track with treatment and promote great survival outcomes for them.
1: Uh, That's a really great point. If it's not covered by their insurance or Medicaid, they're not going to be able to afford some of those more expensive alternatives. So if you can get the insurance companies to change policy here, that would make a a huge difference, doctor. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, doctor. Thank you. The search this morning for four children who range from 11 months to 13 years old that officials do believe survived a plane crash in the Colombian jungle is still underway. It's a race to find them. We'll fill you in next.
1: Also, Salman Rushdie making a rare public appearance. The author accepted an award and still cracked a joke, if you can believe it, about that attempt on his life just nine months ago.
13: It's nice to be back as opposed to not being back, which was also an option.
1: Welcome back. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is telling donors, he told them on a call, that there are only three, quote, credible candidates for 2024, quote, Biden, Trump and me. That is according to new reporting this morning in The New York Times. DeSantis adding, quote, I think of those three, two have a chance to get elected president, Biden and me, based on all the data in the swing states, which is not great for the former president and probably insurmountable because people aren't going to change their view of him. Now, sources tell CNN DeSantis will file the presidential campaign paperwork next week. His plan to defeat Donald Trump is to run to the right of the former president on abortion, on guns, and on transgender rights. And this comes as DeSantis's feud with Walt Disney intensifies. Yesterday, the media giant announced it is scrapping plans to build a billion-dollar office complex in Central Florida, citing changing business conditions. It'll cost the state about 2,000 white collar jobs. So let's go back to our chief national affairs correspondent, Jeff Zelany. DeSantis uh, says this is because your business is floundering, Disney. Disney didn't cite DeSantis, but it's clear there's no love lost between them. And then DeSantis really interestingly on this call saying basically it's me or Biden, forget Trump.
10: Hey, good morning. I mean, certainly that is his uh, wish going into this presidential race, that he believes he is running a two-man race. But... Uh That's getting ahead of ourselves. The reality here is that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, yes, he's going to run and try and appeal to Republican primary voters on what he calls his Florida blueprint. That is uh, all of the conservative laws that he has signed uh, this year alone. Uh, But he is trying to make the case that he has a stronger electability argument. That may be true in the primary campaign. Of course, that's where he begins. But the general election, should he win the primary, that is a long ways off. And do any of these conservative laws on abortion, on schools, on uh, you know a raft of things. Uh, do they hurt him in a general election? So as he travels to New Hampshire today, uh, the Florida governor, he's meeting with uh, New Hampshire legislators, of course. So that is the first in the nation primary state. He has to begin making this case that he is strong enough to uh, take on the former president. He talks about it as the A culture of losing. He said Republicans must reject what he calls a culture of losing. That's a direct hit at Donald Trump, of course, from uh, uh, the midterms in 2018, the election in 2020 and the midterms in 2022. But. Will he actually say these things directly when he uh, begins to confront Donald Trump or say them privately? So that is one of his challenges here. And, of course, there's a new ad the Trump side is putting out going after Ron DeSantis for a previous proposal for a national sales tax. So this is just beginning this fight between the two of them, and it could be an epic one.
2: Yeah, and we've seen this fight play out, Jeff, but you're always on the road out there talking to voters. And we've heard Republican voters tell you that they don't like the former president's attacks on DeSantis because they're both very popular. Trump is running ahead of him in this, but they're still both really popular. So what does this delicate dance look like? How does next week and this run becoming official from DeSantis change that?
10: It's definitely a delicate dance. You're right. Uh, These Republicans do not, Republican voters do not like these candidates tearing one another down. They uh, want to win back the White House. That's why the Florida governor's argument is always uh, about winning about the long-term view, winning the White House here. But there uh, are plenty of data points to show that the uh, Trump's uh, arguments against him on a sales tax, on his previous uh, support for changing Social Security, those have worked. He's in a far weaker position now, Governor DeSantis is, than he was just six months or so ago when he um, um, won the re-election by some 20 points. Mm-hmm. So the... Mm-hmm. Negative ads are uh, always viewed negatively, but they also work. But we should point out as well, it's not a two-man race. Tim Scott, the senator from South yeah. Carolina, he's getting into the race on Monday, and there'll be others as well. Chris Christie is uh, nearing a move as well. So uh, this could be a crowded field.
2: Yeah, maybe Governor Bjunkin as well. Maybe. We'll see. Jeff Zelani, thanks as always. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, guys. Saman Rushdie, the author, making a rare public appearance last night. Of course, he survived a brutal stabbing attack last year when he was on stage at a literary festival. Last night, he attended the Penn American Gala in New York to accept a Courage Award.
13: It's nice to be back as opposed to not being back, (laughs) which was also an option.
2: Rushdie with some humor there. He said he was accepting this award on behalf of those who came to his aid as that attack unfolded.
13: I don't know their names. I never saw their faces. But that, that large group of people, I owe, I owe my life to. Terrorism must not terrorize us. Violence must not deter us as the old Marxists used to say la lutte continue la luta continua the struggle goes on.
2: Of course the award-winning novelist was stabbed multiple times while on stage he was put on a ventilator talking about just the efforts that those who came to his side how much they helped him. In his appearance last night he also warned against what he said is an attack on books and teaching saying that the fight that's happening in Florida has never been more dangerous or more important.
1: Meantime, an urgent search is underway right now in the Amazon jungle after officials in Colombia say that they found clues that suggest to them that four children survived a plane crash. The crash happened about 18 days ago, Three adults, including the pilot, were killed, but rescuers are using helicopters to search the area. They're also on the ground doing this search. The Colombian president tweeted on Wednesday that the children who are as young as 11 months old and up to the age of 13 were found alive. But then he took that tweet down yesterday after a government official said they are waiting for proof. Let's go to Stefano Pozoban. He is live in Colombia for us. And I think the key question this morning is, what indications do they have that these children are alive?
21: Yes, Poppy, that is uh, that is the main question. And uh, yesterday, late at night, uh, the Colombian army released a statement saying that their search and rescue teams uh, had found a fresh footprints. Uh, allegedly, one of the footprints is from the oldest of these children, who is uh, as uh, uh, he's only thirteen years old. And uh, and he said, uh, and they think that this means uh, that. Uh, they are still alive. Uh, also, the grandmother of uh, the children, who is uh, in uh, uh, Waviare, which is the place where the children were meant to arrive on May first before their plane crashed down, he, she was speaking with uh, local media, and she said that uh, they have already found the bow, the sisters, So. so other clues that they are still alive, but she knows, she said, she asked for what is going on. I know we are indigenous people, and this is being aired globally, but I'm in pain here as a grandmother, and from the daughter who I lost, because yesterday we received confirmation. Then the mother of uh, these four children died in uh, the crash and her body had been recovered and it's now with the legal medic team. So we have a community that is coming together here in Colombia, the indigenous community, Poppy, that is coming together and praying for the best for these four children against all odds, against all appearance, there is still hope. And hope is exactly the name that the Colombian army is calling this operation. It's like Operation Hope and it's taking the nation by its breath.
1: Well, there's a lot of power in hope. I know they're doing everything they can to find those kids. And yes. what a miracle it would be if they can. Stefano Posemon, thanks for your excellent reporting on the ground.
19: Okay. It's
2: hard to believe, but it's been almost a year since that deadly shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 children and two teachers were killed. The community, though, a year in, is still searching for answers. Sinan's Shimon Procupaz has been covering the story every single day. He joins us live next. It's been
1: almost a year, if you can believe it, since the deadly mass shooting at that elementary school in Evaldi, Texas. 19 children, two teachers were killed at Robb Elementary just days before Memorial Day 2022 and families were left with only memories of the loved ones they lost. And so many questions, right? And daily reminders that their lives will never be the same.
28: What is your understanding of what went wrong that day?
19: My understanding is this first group of officers that come in. They're shot at, they retreat, and they never go back in. They let children die in that classroom. Ah. Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding? Am I bleeding? Uh,
22: Uh, my wife's classroom.
19: And I can't even explain to you what they've taken from me. He's in the class. It's more than just lives. You know, maybe Lexi's gone immediately, but that's what they've taken from me, those answers. Had they engaged immediately and my child is deceased, then I know in my heart that she wasn't scared very long. But because they waited so long, now I'll never know. I don't know if it was fast, and I don't know if it took 30, 40 minutes. And that's hard. That's hard to sit with.
1: Unimaginable pain. And that was just a clip from this week's episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. So joining us now is our colleague and friend, CNN Senior Crime and Justice Correspondent Shimon Porcupine. He and his team just won a Peabody Award and many others for their extensive coverage of this story. Shimon,
28: thank you very much. No, thank you. Um, You know, this is one of the most difficult and probably most, I don't know, just remarkable things that I have ever been part of, putting this hour together that will air on Sunday. Um, The families and just the pain and the continued pain that they're feeling um, because they're just not getting any answers. You know, you hear Lexi Rubio's mom there, Kim Rubio, talk about, They just wanna know if their kids suffered. The fact that they had to be in that classroom for so long with the gunman and police not barreling in and taking the gunman out. They just wanna know, did my kids suffer all that time? And what we do in this hour is we really go deep into what happened that day. A lot of that we kind of know, but more importantly, it's the pain that many of the kids who survived suffered in those minutes. And really more than an hour of waiting for the police to come in and rescue them. And then we try to give answers to the parents. Something really remarkable happens uh, to us when we're in Uvalde putting this together. One of the parents, uh, a mom calls us and says she wants to see video of the breach of when officers went into the room and rescued her kids. They want to see that video. They want to see their kids being rescued by the police. And we show them this video of their kids running out of the classroom As police break in and you see their kids running through the hallway, one of them was shot in the leg. Um, Another one uh, was just full of blood uh, from being in that classroom and the reaction from these parents and seeing that. They've been wanting to see this and no one's been willing to share it with them. And so they come to us and they ask us to do this.
2: I mean, it makes your stomach turn to hear Lexi's mom talking about that and just wanting to know what her final moments were like which any parent deserves i think and that's like that's one of the biggest parts of the story i think is that so many of the questions these parents have had have not come from the authorities they've come from from journalists people like you and your team to get them the answers that they deserve yeah what are the biggest questions they have still
28: well if their kids suffered and also the other question is why has there been no accountability you know we're a year later and their law enforcement officials are still pointing fingers at each other, and for these parents, they have to live in this community. They're still surrounded by many of the officers who failed them that day, by leaders in this community who failed them that day. They're not leaving these communities; they're staying there, and that's what's so difficult. And when you go to Uvalde and you walk around, you know you, it's a small community. There are murals everywhere of the kids' pictures, photos. There are reminders, constant reminders of what happened that day, and it's just so difficult for these family members. Lexi Rubio's mother, um, Kim there, there was a moment where we were having a conversation and she says to me that basically she's just waiting to reach the finish line so she could see her daughter again. And it was so difficult to hear because she does have other children, but this is how much she misses her daughter, that this was her life. And her father... Uh, You see there sitting next to Kim is Felix Felix Rubio. He's a sheriff's deputy that day. He's in the hallway as his daughter's inside that classroom wondering what's going on. He couldn't go in. He got there late, but by the time he got there, he couldn't go in to try and rescue her. And so we take a look at his day that day in the hallway, outside the hallway. So you're going to see a lot of new video in in this hour, Um, and it is the most powerful uh, hour that I have certainly ever been part of, and just to see the emotion of these families, and to see what we as CNN, as journalists, are able to do to try to help them, and it's it's really uh, something really special and just really difficult. It's gonna it's an emotional and just powerful powerful hour.
2: It's difficult to cover. So it has been I know the those most difficult. Are yet. so grateful yeah, for you well, though. And, thank you guys. Um, thank you. you. It's hard to get an award for this, I imagine. Yeah, I imagine. But- But it's really important work, and and it's going to be a tough hour to watch. You can see Shimon's full report. It's going to air this Sunday on this this week's episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, 8 p.m. Sunday night. We'll be right back.
1: A new report from the National Association of uh, Realtors shows U.S. home sales fell in April for the second month in a row. It's not the only place where prices are falling. Our senior data reporter, Harry Anton, is here. Good Friday morning. Thank God. (laughs) What's the number? Manhattan is
2: sinking. (laughs) Do you have any good news for us this morning? I
27: think I do have some good news. All right. This morning's number is... 1.7% 1.7%, because existing home sale prices in April dropped 1.7% from April of 2022. That's the largest yearly drop since 2012. And it's not the only place where we're seeing prices drop over the last year. Look at the average nation- nationwide gas price. A year ago, look at that, it was four fifty-seven. It's now down to three fifty-four. And remember those egg prices were really, really high? Take a look at the wholesale Midwest egg costs, a large dozen. Amazing. Look at that. It was 546 in December look where it is now it's 94 cents so we're seeing prices drop in a lot of different places
2: okay but if you're sitting inside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue right now you're inside the White House their frustration is that they see something like this but it's not showing up in poll numbers it's not showing up in how Americans view the economy Has that changed at all
27: Yeah, I think it has changed you know Americans still view the economy negatively but when you ask them, is the economy the nation's top problem? Look at this. Now it's 29%. That's a drop from October Mm. of 2022 when it was 46% and Mm. April of 2022 when it was 39%. So a clear drop there. What's replacing it on the list of issues? Well, here we go. Bad leadership up from 14% to 18% now from October to April and guns from 2% to 7%. So the economy... Less of an issue now in the Americans' minds, even if they're not actually quite sure it's in good shape.
2: Yeah, and it seems we always see a spike in where Americans rank guns on their list of concerns when we see uh, shootings happening, a a spate of them covering more coverage.
27: Absolutely.
1: Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Well, the Cannes Film Festival celebrating Harrison Ford last night with a lifetime achievement honor. An emotional Ford thanked the crowd and his wife, Melissa Flockhart as he premiered his latest and final Indiana Jones film. I'm
13: very touched. I'm very moved by, by this. It, um, they say when you're about to die, you, you see your life flash uh, before your eyes. And I just saw my life flash before my eyes. A great part of my life, but not all of my life. I love you, too. Thank you.
1: The new film is the 80-year-old's fifth Indiana Jones movie. The first, of course, was in 1981. How could we forget the Raiders of the Lost Ark?
2: Also this morning, Ukrainian President Zelensky just made a surprise trip. He's now in Saudi Arabia, but he is making a surprise trip to Japan. The G7 summit where President Biden is right now and other world leaders. What to expect? What is he going to ask for those world leaders? We'll tell you ahead. That is it
1: for this episode of CNN this morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com/audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.